So as we go back to our seats, we're preparing to hear today's scripture, which comes from the book of John, chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. Please follow along with me on the screen behind me or in your Bibles or your devices. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, at the beginning of the year, um, as we're kind of getting towards the end, at the beginning of the year, we took some time to... Uh, as a church, to look at the uh, Apostles' Creed. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed is a short, like, distillation of the Christian faith. It's, it's, the, it's kind of the a summary of what anyone who's a Christian, it dates back to the fourth century, any, anyone who's a Christian, what we believe. All, all, the, all the organized uh, denominations and groups of Christianity recognize it as the, the oldest and most recognized confession. And, and it starts off like this. It says this. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So it talks about God the Father. Right? And then it says this. It says this about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to be talking about that next week. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And, and there you have, right there, you have the bedrock of our faith. This is what we believe. And this is who we believe in. This is what we believe, and this is who we believe in. We believe in God the Father, the one true God. He is almighty. There is no might. There is no power. There is nothing apart from him. He alone is the creator. He alone is the originator of all things. We also believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is equal with the Father. He is eternal with the Father. He came as a human. He suffered. He was crucified, he died, and he rose again. He took our sin. He defeated death, and he spoiled the power of the devil. And then he rose again triumphantly. 
And our Lord and our King is seated at the right hand of the Father right now in heaven, and he will return as the King and the judge of heaven and earth. That's what we believe. That's the bedrock of our faith. That's the foundation upon which everything else in our faith rests. That truth, we believe in God the Father and God the Son and all those things that we just said. And the creed keeps that really succinct. It it says all that about the Father and the Son in about 12 lines, which is pretty amazing. But that's only two of the three persons of the Godhead. There's only two of the three persons of the Trinity. We've got all this wonderful stuff, these 12 lines succinct but packed with all this about the Father Almighty and God the Son. And you want to know what it says about the third person of the Godhead? You know what it says about the, the third person of the Trinity? Here's what it says. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. It's, it's those words, I believe in the Holy Spirit, followed by a comma, and then it just changes the subject and goes down into really some really good stuff, but it just changes the subject. It says that's all that it says about him. It says that we believe in him. That's all we really know what to say about him. Let's move on. And that doesn't really stand out to most of us when we say or read the Apostles' Creed because I think that's where most Christians live. We believe notionally in the, con- in the concept of the Holy Spirit, but we really know very little about Him. We, we know very little about who he is, and what he does. And we know even less about him experientially. And that's because I think we are respectable Christians. We're not those crazy Christians. We're the respectable Christians. We're not too different from everybody else. We just happen to believe in God the Father Almighty and God the Son and that God the Father exists and he Jesus Christ came, and we're getting ready to celebrate that at Christmas, and he did some things, and that's what we believe. We believe we're respectable. We're not all that different. I said a couple of weeks ago, we're, 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 we're sinners just like you. We just happen to be forgiven because Jesus did that thing way back then. We're respectable. We don't want to be the weird Christians. We don't want to be the weird ones. Guys, I'm going to go ahead and pop that bubble right now. The 12 lines that we read about God the Father and God the Son already put us counter everything else in the culture around us. If we believe that God the Father exists and he created everything and we were created by him and for him and that we are are sinners, rebels against him and he gave his son because he loved us and his son took our sin upon us and he's coming again, returning, we already are against the rest of the culture around us. we are so tempted, so pulled by the wiles and the plan of the enemy not to be so different from everybody else around us. So how can we hold on to the, those 12 lines of the Apostles' Creed without being so different from anybody else? Because I still want to have my career and my family and my home and my Instagram that looks like everybody else around me. 
I still want to have, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to follow Christ and yet also follow the world. And Jesus said, you cannot have both. If you can hear one thing this morning, my friends, hear this, you cannot have both. You can have Christ or you can have the world, but you cannot have both. Jesus said, if you love the world, you're my enemy. We cannot have both. The idea of, of the Holy Spirit being present and active in us and in the church, the idea of God communicating with people and leading people, it scares us, doesn't it? There's some of you that are already like, that's uncomfortable to me already. The thought of the living God, present in our midst, in us, actively communicating with us, actively leading us, that is scary because what we say is, what could happen? Randy, people could get really weird. What would people do? How can we, this is what we're really saying, how can we retain control if that's true? And I'm going to tell you the good news and the bad news is we cannot. The idea of control over your life is an illusion. The idea that we can control what happens in and around the church is an absolute, not just an illusion, but is an, it's idolatry from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the church. We don't get to determine what we believe and don't believe and what we'll practice and not practice. That is predetermined by our Lord. When we sign on to him being Lord, we sign on to all the stuff that we understand and we agree with and all the stuff that we don't understand and we think is kind of weird. We're signing on to losing, releasing our clutches around our semblance, our idolatry of control. No, we're much more comfortable with the other 17 lines of the Apostles' Creed. God created, he sent his son, he died for us, he rose, he'll come again. We're comfortable with that because they're concrete facts about something that happened in the past and something that we think will happen in the future. We just notionally touch on the existence of the Holy Spirit. We'll mention him at times, but we really want to keep a, a seatbelt on. I, I've heard preachers, I've heard pastors say that. I've heard pastors say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I just believe in the Holy Spirit with a seatbelt. What an asinine, can I say at that in the church? What an asinine, idolatrous statement. We're talking about God. When the believers gathered in Acts, it says there was an awe in their midst. And there were some crazy things happening. There was an awe, not because people were acting weird or doing things. There was an awe because there was someone in their midst. The God who created the world was in their midst. 
And that's what he has for us if we would accept nothing less than that. But we fall right into the clever trap that's laid by the enemy of God. Jesus may have defeated and defanged his enemy at the cross. The ending may already be written, but Satan, his enemy, he can defang the church. He can defang the church by having us doubt and deny the presence and power of God among us through his Holy Spirit. Does this sound familiar? Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And if you think he's just talking about the world there, listen to this next line he says. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, he says. He's talking to Christians about people who carry the name of Christ. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul considered it so important that those should be married together that he said, avoid such people. His scheme, the enemy's scheme, is to get us to believe a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that is where we doubt and deny God's presence and power among us. So therefore, there is little presence. And there is little power among us. And that's because we're guilty of quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul gave these instructions as well. In Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And do not quench the Spirit. I don't want us to grieve and quench the Holy Spirit any longer. And I know Jesus doesn't want that. After all, He spent so much time talking about the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, he said this in the passage that was just read for us. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage or your benefit that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, he will not come to you. But if I go, he will come to you. He said, he said it was so crucial that as he was getting ready to ascend to heaven, he said it was so crucial that he send the Holy Spirit because... It's the Holy Spirit's work to apply to us what Christ won for us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to apply to us what Christ has won for us. He said this in verses 12 through 15 of the same passage that Carolyn read. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's saying he will apply to you what I have won for you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus did his great work on the cross. He, then he took his seat by the Father, and now the Holy Spirit is among us to do his great work in our midst by applying to us what Christ has won for us. To move it from being a historical fact to a living reality within us. That is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. That we are those who have tasted that, the, that what happened on the cross, what happened in the incarnation, the truth about who God the Father is, is a living reality within us by the presence and power of the third person of Godhead dwelling within us and among us. That's why Jesus says, what he's really saying is, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will do things. That's what he's saying. He, when the Holy Spirit shows up, he does things. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will. The Holy Spirit does things. When he shows up, things happen. The, the very first time we see the Holy Spirit is at the very beginning at creation. It says that God created the, the heavens and the earth and the world was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the darkness and then he spoke into existence the Word. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Word. He spoke into existence and the Holy Spirit actualized it. He's the one that made it happen. The Father spoke the word and the spirit that was hovering over the dark waters. He released his mighty power and light and all of creation sprang into being. It is through the spirit of God that he releases his mighty power. The word for power in the Greek is the word dunamis. It means, it means power. It means might. It means power. It means ability. It means strength. And that's why Jesus was so insistent for his disciples to wait for him to pour out the promise of the Father upon them before they tried to do anything that he had already commanded them to do. He had already given them the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he said, but wait, wait, Acts 8, but you will receive power, power, dunamis, Ability, strength, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be then, then you will be my, they had already, they were already witnesses. They'd already seen what Christ had done. They'd already seen his death. They'd already seen his resurrection. They could witness as witnesses saying, hey, this is what we've seen. But he's saying, this is what will set the Christian witness apart from anything else. Then you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and received his power, the strength, the ability, my strength and my ability, and then you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that, that is exactly what was unleashed on the day of Pentecost. All of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, all of a sudden, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, suddenly had power. It suddenly had effect. He had been risen 
for weeks at this point. Word had gotten around everywhere that he had risen. But only a few believed, even of his own disciples, his own followers. What changed? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit power was poured out upon them, and suddenly the gospel, the good news of Jesus, had power and had effect upon people. Through the life and ministry of the disciples, in the skeptical, doubting people that surrounded them, and then in that power, that power was so powerful, it created a new kind of community in their midst where it says they, all of a sudden, they didn't care what was their own. These same disciples that were fighting over who's going to sit at his right hand and who's left, all of a sudden, they said, I'll give you everything I have. I don't count anything as my own. Because the gospel had powerful effect within them because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and within them. When the Holy Spirit comes, he does things. He releases God's own power and ability within us and among us. That's the gift, the promise of the Father. We aren't left to our own power. Isn't that great news this morning, Christian? Have you been a Christian long enough to feel defeated, to feel overwhelmed, to feel like the world around us is too dark, that the task before us is too great? Just to be a a person, or much less a husband, or a father, or a wife, or to, to be, much less to hear God's command, go into all the world and preach the gospel? How in the world can we make any dent in the culture around us? Have you lived long enough to feel defeated? Hear the good news to you this morning. We are not left to our own power and to our own ability. He is giving us his own power whenever he gives us his Holy Spirit. The giving, the gift of the Holy Spirit is God's pledge to us that he is at work, that he's not done with this world, and that he's not done with us. And he has given, he has given, he has given his Holy Spirit to his church. And the result has been throughout the history of the church, and it should be now, that the same spirit that brought light out of darkness, that same spirit is alive and active among us. I want you to think of that. I want you to think of that. If you call yourself a Christian, that is your heritage. Not weak, powerless Christianity. That's your heritage. Now you you and I might have, have lived and might be living very different lives, but that's our heritage. It's like suddenly finding out, hey, you're the, You're the son of this billionaire that just died. You didn't know. I've been living my life like I've been living, but all of a sudden I found out this is my heritage. Believer, that is your heritage. This is your heritage. That is your great gift, our great gift from our great father. And whenever in history the church has been slumbering and asleep, and by the way, The church is slumbering and asleep. Whenever the church has been slumbering and asleep and God has freshly poured out his mighty spirit, you know what has happened? The same thing that happened here. 
the church has been awakened. And there's been an explosion of power. When the Holy Spirit comes, he does things. What kind of things does he do? When the Holy Spirit comes, you know what he does? He affects people. That's always how Jesus talks about the Spirit. When he comes, he'll convict the world, he says in verse 8. When, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, he says in verse 13. The Holy Spirit comes and interacts with people. The Holy Spirit comes and communicates with people. He brings the reality of God to us. The Holy Spirit brings the kingdom of God to earth, is what I'm saying, within us and in this church. And I cannot stress this enough. This is so incredibly important. I cannot stress this enough. When the Holy Spirit moves, when he interacts with people, he is known and experienced. He is known and experienced. He moves from being a notion or an idea that fills one line of our creed to filling our hearts and our lives so that Christ is all in all. And he has a powerful effect within us and through us. This is an important truth because I think that many professing Christians live in what the author A.W. Tozer called temporary atheism. That's where we believe that God has moved in the past. We generally believe that he'll move in the future. But in the present, this is what Tozer said, in the present we are guilty of a kind of temporary atheism which leaves us alone in the universe while for the time, God is not. We talk of him much and loudly, but we secretly think of him as being absent. I wonder how many of you, that's, if you're honest, that's really your, the way that you think, the way that you feel. Maybe you generally believe in God in the past. Maybe you think that he'll do something in the future. You might talk of him loudly, but secretly in your soul you have this fear that he's absent. Is that where you live? Is, is that what your life looks like from moment to moment, day to day? I think Satan has lulled many Christians to sleep. He's conditioned us. He's conditioned us. He's groomed us to expect and hope and pray for very little experience with the Holy Spirit, with God. And that's because we are so, and he does so because we are so distracted and we're so doubtful, and we're so distrusting of the Father. But I'm here to proclaim a truth to you. That's why I'm standing here to do this morning. I will die on this hill. That the same God that created the universe, the same God that circled on Mount Sinai so the mountain shook, and the people begged Moses, would you go up there and send us away from him? 
The same God who created the universe that shook Mount Sinai and raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that same God is alive and active and present in the church. He is here to be known and to be experienced. He is here to reveal Christ to you. That's what that passage that we read just said. He is here to reveal Christ to you. He is here to make Christ real in you and through you and in the midst of his church. That's what he is here to do. His arm is not shortened. He is not a weaker God in the 21st century than he was previously. How dare we believe that? But don't we? Don't we read Acts? Don't we read biographies and histories of him moving in the past? We think, oh man, that must have been some sort of a a different kind of God than he is today. He must have been in a different mood than he is now. And we go back to being distracted and doubtful and distrusting of the Father. When the explosive, dunamis power of God's Holy Spirit, his own presence that dwell within the sanctuary is now within us and among us. He is here to empower you. I want you to hear this. He is here to empower you to live and to minister in his dunamis power. What we're saying, what Jesus is saying here is that The Holy Spirit changes people. And that change is profound. It's it's the deepest kind of change. Think about it. There was a stark difference between the way people responded to Jesus before Pentecost and the way they responded to him afterwards. Jesus could draw a crowd He would draw huge crowds when he was healing them, when he was multiplying a little kid's lunch to feed everybody. He'd draw a crowd when he would talk about loving him more than anything else in the world. They would leave. But all of a sudden, after Pentecost, the gospel is proclaimed. And people will go to the death for him. What changed? You know what changed? He sent the promised one. And the Holy Spirit changes people by bringing, first of all, he, is, he brings conviction. He said, you notice that? He said, when he comes, he will convict the world. And, and he says that he will convict the world of, of three things, of of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That word convict is a a powerful word. It it means to convince or to expose something. It, It means not just to prove something to be true, though it does mean that. But but it that's not enough, right? We had a guy that used to come to Doxa, a lot of you guys know him, and uh, he, I was in a meeting one time, and, and 
I remember somebody grabbed a Coke Zero and he said, I don't believe in Coke Zero. And we're like, what do you mean you don't believe in Coke Zero? He's like, there's no way that has no calories in it. I think they're lying. I'm like, they've done tests on it. It doesn't have sugar in it. Nope, I don't believe it. Anything that tastes like that has to have sugar in it. They're just duping you. Or you might have that uncle, that friend, that neighbor. Maybe you're sitting here yourself and the world is flat. Right? We can, it's not enough to prove things to be true. Because sometimes people just want to believe something different. But Jesus says that the Holy Spirit doesn't just prove things to be true. He convinces. He, he exposes our minds and our hearts to, to feel the truth. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit will come, the gift of the Father, and he will make the truth a reality in you. He, he opens minds, minds that once were closed. Isn't that an amazing part of the story? And how many times have we seen that in history? Minds who are closed, people who are, who are skeptical about Christ and his claims and didn't want any part of that, didn't want any part of that Jesus or that church thing. All of a sudden, one moment, the Holy Spirit breathes upon them and they taste and see that all, all of that is true. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit opens our minds to be convinced of sin and righteousness and judgment. These, these are things that if, that if we are, if someone is to be convinced of them, it, it changes the baseline of their whole existence. If you suddenly come to see and believe sin, righteousness, and judgment as Jesus taught it, that has to change everything you believe about yourself, this world, your life, your past, your future, everything. It changes the baseline of who we are. It changes the baseline of what we think our life should be and must be about. When he comes, he says he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is what the Holy Spirit does to change people. And it's what he has done and continues to do in your heart if you are a believer in Christ. And it's what he must do for any person to become a Christian. Nobody becomes a Christian unless and until the Holy Spirit breathes upon their soul to convict them, make it real to them, sin and righteousness and judgment. This could be a whole sermon or a series of sermons, but what is it he convicts concerning sin? He, first of all, convicts a person of the existence of sin. That there is sin in my heart, that there is a God, and for anyone to worship or serve anyone other than him, even myself, as great as I might think I am, for anyone to serve and to worship anyone other than him is sin. It is worthy, we'll get to it in a second, of judgment. 
It is rebellion against a holy God. The Spirit convicts us of this utter sinfulness of sin, just how dark and terrible that sin is. And it convicts of our sin. That's when you really know the Holy Spirit's at work in somebody. It's when it's no longer about them and their sin, all of a sudden all I care about is my sin. That's the state that I'm in. I'm in a state of, of utter sin. I'm a rebel against God. God is holy and I'm a, I'm a sinner. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. And there's nothing that I can do to, to undo what I have done. I'm trapped in my sin and the utter sinfulness of my sin and it's my sin. I, it's not my mom and dad's fault. It's not society's fault. It's my fault. I alone stand in this place. Overwhelmed by my own darkness, the Holy Spirit convicts of that. And the Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness, of the existence of righteousness. I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, and I say, that is a righteous God. I see his holiness I see his love towards me and toward humanity. I see him coming and sending his son. I see him taking on flesh. I see the righteousness of those actions. I see his utter and complete rightness. And I see my sinfulness and I'm trapped there. I see because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, he alone deserves all honor and all praise. And yet I feel myself unwilling to give him the praise that he is due. And I'm convicted of that. I'm convicted of my need for righteousness. I'm a sinner and I need righteousness, but I, maybe I try for a while to, to clean myself up, up and I change my ways and change what I'm doing, but I, I can't do it. I see over and over again, maybe in a moment, maybe over weeks, over months, I see it's like, putting holes in a dam with talk, all kinds of holes in it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm holding back a torrent that I cannot hold back. I see my need of righteousness and the righteousness of God. And I hear Jesus say, those that believe in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. See Jesus on the cross saying to the, to the sinner beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. A hope begins to rise there, but then it says that the Holy Spirit convicts of judgment. All of a sudden, someone who was against God, anti-God, had wanted no, no part of Christianity, no part of Jesus, all of a sudden they are convicted, their taste and see the, the justice of God's judgment. How I deserve whatever he wants to do to me because of my sinfulness and his righteousness. I'm shut up in my own sin. I'm shut up by the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. I see his justice and I say, God, you are right to do whatever you want to do with me. And all of a sudden, I, I know. 
I know the truth that the judge is returning. And he has seen and knows everything about me and all that I am. But then he convicts me, he convinces me of the judgment that was offered on the cross. And hope rises. I see Christ on the cross and I see all of a sudden hope that there the righteousness of God is demonstrated. There the sin is dealt with. There judgment is poured out upon one who could take it and to bear it for me. And my soul is, is broken because I know that Christ died for me and there is hope if I will only believe. The Holy Spirit is the God who acts in our midst. And when He is present, He convicts people of sin and righteousness and judgment. When He is present, there is awe because there is power there to change you. There is someone here who loves you in your sin and in your deserving of judgment. There's one who loves you in his righteousness and demonstrates his love for you in his righteousness. But you must respond. But you must respond. You who aren't a Christian yet, you must respond. You must confess Him as Lord. You must bow your knee to Him. You must turn away from everything other than Him. You must respond. And believer, you believer that's been dancing with the world, you believer that's been lulled to sleep by the lullaby, you believer who has accepted lesser, who has lived in temporary atheism, you believer, you must respond. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's present here. Won't you fall on your knees before such a king?
The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. He desires to pour them out afresh and anew. But we have to turn away from that which distracts us. We have to turn away from those sneaky doubts. Not to say that a Christian never has doubts, but you know what I'm talking about. And that distrust of the Father. Don't resist him this morning. I'm going to pray, and the band will come up. We're going to have communion together. There are two stations, uh, one here and one here. We're going to do things a little bit different this morning. Instead of coming from the outside, if you come from the inside, I'll go back on the way out. Um, as communion is open, um, if you'd like somebody to pray for you, I'd like to pray with you. Maybe it's to turn away from distraction, doubt, and distrust. Maybe it's just to ask, I want and need more of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need God to help him pour himself out upon me. I'd love to pray for you. It won't be a whole big thing. I believe God will meet you if he is convicting you and encouraging you to respond. Father, We stand here in your presence. And I pray you would release your power, release your spirit, pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, to those hurting hearts, come. Do whatever surgery you need to do to take away doubt and distrust, distraction. Holy Spirit, bring your conviction, not mine. Demonstrate your presence and your power, Lord, so that Jesus would be glorified. We might taste and see that he is good and that Jesus Christ might be all in all in our lives, in our church. And we would see and experience you move in us and through us for your glory for our joy.